Can't Say That is a sociology podcast that poses more questions than answers. Join your hosts, doctors, Nama Carlin and Melanie White in a journey to make the familiar unfamiliar. Say that, a sociological podcast raising more questions than answers. Hi everyone, I'm Melanie White. I'm Nama Carlin. That was a great intro, Melanie. I think you should just keep doing it all the time. Oh no, no, no. That was my <laughs> first one and I feel very anxious and nervous. But mm. alas, here, you know what? We have an exciting thinker to talk about today. Today we are talking about dun dun dun. <laughs> One of the great sociological founders, uh, a man by the name of Emile Durkheim, a French sociologist who was born in 1858 and died in 1917, and he's credited actually with founding the sociological tradition in France. Oh, okay. So there were other traditions elsewhere? Yes. So, for, for example, um, he would be roughly a contemporary of somebody like Max Weber. Uh, you know, sociology is really one of these infant disciplines from the perspective of others like, you know, the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, etc., and philosophy, certainly, because philosophy uh, stretches back until, you know, times of, of ancient Greece in terms of Aristotle and Plato, and of course, even before that, so. And makes sense because last time we spoke about Descartes, who was one of the fathers of, or the father of contemporary philosophy. Mm. So we're starting, we had Descartes, and now we're moving on kind of shifting gears into sociology. So both of these thinkers last last time and, and today are, um, seem quite quite pivotal in how we understand knowledge or just the way we the way we see the world today and in terms of the way that we see the self and how it's organized but it's important to say that despite the similarities between these these two guys that they're french that they're founding fathers that they did their stuff <laughs> a long time ago. Um, they have really different questions. And so on the one hand, last time we talked about uh, the fact that for Descartes, Descartes interested in broader questions of knowledge. You know, does reality exist? You know, how do we know? What is the foundation of knowledge? I doubt therefore I am. Exactly. <laughs> and Durkheim isn't actually concerned with those questions. He's concerned with questions that have to do with the extent to which society influences and shapes our conduct. Okay, so just a bit of like a rewind. So Descartes was quite a religious man. So for him, theology factored in a lot to his questions. So we were talking about this idea of, you know, truth and what is knowledge? How do I know what is good and true in the world? Durkheim tries to move away from that philosophical, theological shift into a more secular sociological science of seeing the world. Absolutely. I think it's that rejection of that, pardon me, that Durkheim rejects that sense of a theological external ordering of knowledge for another kind of external ordering of knowledge that comes in the form of society 
societies. So for someone like Durkheim, Durkheim will say, well, our knowledge, our beliefs, our values, etc., are socially constructed, which means that there is a coherency and a similarity between our beliefs and values, but that similarity tends to be constructed by virtue of the society in which we find ourselves. Durkheim is trying to create a science of society, right? So he's saying this is not about, you know, not philosophy, not biology. Let's create a a study of society. As with any science, you need to be able to measure something. So what, what are the quantifiable measures of society then? How do you know and how can you measure what a society is? What are the things that you can know? I mean, fundamentally, isn't that not a question of epistemology like with Descartes? (laughs) <laughs> interesting series of questions there, Norma. Let me, let me tackle them one by one. Put your Durkheim hat on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think that Durkheim is in a milieu where he's trying to think about certainly how to approach the subject matter of social life in a way that can be treated scientifically. And he's wanting to avoid the sort of spiritualism or the personalism of the kind of method that Descartes uh, uses, which is sort of that internalized, let me look deep inside myself and see what possible truths are, are, are available, and rather to locate social life on a an observable ground, so the ground of facts, in the same way that uh, the physical sciences, chemistry, physics, have observable, verifiable facts that can end up being extended into forms of knowledge. So this is something that one of Durkheim's innovations is to say, well, you know, these these kinds of values, beliefs, cultural norms, attitudes, etc., insofar as they're shared across a population, these are the facts of social life. And so consequently, we can study them as if they were real in the same way that the the facts associated with chemistry and physics might be. That is extremely interesting. So in developing sociology as a distinct discipline from biology, from all the other disciplines, basically Durkheim is arguing that things like religion, morals, finances, even the things that we, the way that we Mm -hmm. consume or the way that we purchase language, Mm -hmm. these are also social facts, I guess. And that's how we can measure a society. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, he defines social facts as in, in very broad terms. I mean, it's essentially something like social facts are ways of thinking, acting, feeling that end up being constrained by three criteria. One is if it's extended across a general population so that it's general across a population, i.e. that it's shared. Second thing is is that it's not reducible to any one person, i.e. Melanie thinks social fact. Actually, no, it's sort of something that's shared more broadly. And the third thing is is that a social fact is something that constrains our behavior and our conduct so that it restricts uh, certain possibilities, and even those possibilities might not really realize themselves may not be realized by us so they're coercive and constraining then and do we think about them do we know that we're behaving in that way is it something that you go 
oh gosh I feel this constraint by society well this is what's no you know this is what's so fascinating I mean the fact that we are sitting here uh, in this uh, recording studio you for our listeners this week you could be thinking to yourselves and yes they could be dreaming or I could be dreaming but no we're back in the recording studio and uh, I think for somebody like Durkheim there's the the fact that you and I mm. are speaking English mm. without having any prior feeling of, ah, I am constrained to speak English. Mm. Uh, me, because I am unilateral, uni- I have not unilateral, I have, I'm mm. unilingual. M- Nama. Mono- monolingual? Monolingual, yes, yes, that's right, <laughs> monolingual. Whereas Nama um, has more than one language. Yeah. Nama had asked that question about, well, uh, do we feel the constraint? And no, we don't. And so often we just assume uh, that our desires, insofar as they are conditioned by society, we claim them as our desires. We don't problematize them. Nonetheless, Durkheim's point is, is that uh, those desires are conditioned by social constraints. I have a problem. What does that mean about agency? Many commentators and critics of Durkheim will argue that he's got this deterministic sense of the social. And oh, that. who's going to say that? Not, oh. on, not on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, you know, people do, and they have, uh, have charged him with that absence of agency. But I think your point is well taken that, you know, yes, it, it, it's the case that we uh, assume and adopt these conventions in an unthinking fashion. And yet, uh, at the same time, they exercise constraint over us precisely because, you know, I can't use my Monopoly money in order to buy a loaf of bread. I mean, I, I suppose I could try it out, but I don't think it would be considered legal tender. <laughs> no, I don't know what that would work either. I would, so, lo- I would love to, to see that happen, mm. though. Could we say then that he conceptualizes himself as being this fundamental measurement of the social then? I like the word fundamental, but, but not I'm not measure. sure about measure. Maybe indicative is, is a better hmm. way that there's something about the way that our concrete practices, that is the, the basic things that we do in organizing our day-to-day life, the practices of going shopping for bread, for instance, Mm. or how we exchange money, or how we request things, or codes of conduct, that, that sort of material way in which we live our everyday relations, yeah. that those practices then become organized as, or, or indicative as, as, as a repository for the prevailing social norms of a society. Okay, so then I have it. The self is fundamentally social for Durkheim. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so too. I think that that's what we can say. So basically society isn't, isn't deterministic. The individual is the ultimate element of society. How does that sound? Can we say that? Yes. Again, with but reservation? Yeah, I think the reason why I'm hesitating a bit is that I think for Durkheim, he really wants the emphasis in conversation and analysis to be on society okay and to think about the way that society ends up structuring and organizing individual conduct and he acknowledges yes you know individuals are are the important basis of society 
But with that in mind, whatever our duties are, you know, he's got this marvelous line in Rules of Soci- Sociological Method that was written in 1895. He, says he has some- a good memory for years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you listening at home, it's in fact not entirely uh, true. Uh, The number 1895 has just magically flashed up on our screen here. He has this uh, statement where he says something to the effect of, when I perform my duties as a brother, a husband, or a citizen, and carry out those commitments and obligations, even if I feel those duties, feel those responsibilities in my actions, I conform to them, and I feel their reality in me. He says, it's not I who have prescribed these duties. I have received them through education. And that education is, of course, like the education of society or the education of family. It's education of being a member of society. Something interesting here is that we're kind of born into society. So it exists prior to us even being in the world. Society forms and informs who we are, as opposed to Descartes, who kind of just saw the world through the lens of the singular human individual, the singular mind, right? The capacity to be a thinking being. Durkheim is actually saying, well, you are actually born into this entire system and structures that will inform who you are as a person. So society precedes the individual through education. We learn how to be human, I guess, maybe. Maybe Mm. that's the question of the self. So what happens before I'm educated? Does he mean informal, formal education or... Well, I think he's got a, yeah, I mean, a big, <clears throat> big umbrella term of what edu- education means. What's just a side biographical uh, uh, moment. So um, we mentioned earlier that uh, Durkheim was one of the founders of sociology. And actually, when he first came into academic life, he didn't uh, fall right into a chair in sociology. Oh, is this Gossip Corner? Uh, you know, I don't even know if it's so much gossip. He, you know, he apparently he was a really strident uh, person, and uh, I just often, imagine from his his photo that mustache. You know, it's interesting. Um, he was classmates with um, Henri Bergson, so Bergson for uh, for that's how I pr- uh, prefer to pronounce the name. And uh, apparently Bergson would make fun of him. Because oh no, he was. T- yeah, he was teased <laughs> just because he was just so he's like that kid in the class that's like, no, it must be this way. Oh, and uh, I think Bergson had a certain lightness and a sense of humor and yeah, it would kind of tease him. How would he come to this question of selfhood? So he said we are born into a society. It precedes us. We adopt the rules and obligations. In doing so, don't we also perpetuate and continue these these rules, I guess, these social facts? So not only are they, in a sense, something that exists externally to the individual, we also embody, perpetuate, educate. Well, and he has this sense of the way in which these norms and values, the beliefs, just the things that we do, they're not passed on through heredity or biological transference or forms of biological adaptation. 
they come to us through learning. With Descartes, we have a dualism of mind-body. I think with Durkheim, we have one too. Dualism of the self and society? Oh, Nama. (laughs) That was a very wonderfully elegant lead-in to one of uh, Durkheim's great essays called uh, The Dualism of Human Nature. How did I know? Yes. (laughs) That for our listeners, was published in 1914. And I'll have you know that that is memorized and not flashing up on our screen. Um, Wasn't it one of the last things he ever wrote? It was, actually, because he died in 1917. And actually, this is something, you know, if not that this is juicy gossip. It's sad gossip, his son dying. Yeah, so his son, uh, so um, uh, the uh, First World War began in 1914, and his son, André, uh, was uh, sent to war, and he died. And uh, Durkheim was so grief-stricken that he never, ever recovered. And so he died in 1917. And so this was, in fact, the last piece. You know, I think that there were other things that he wrote, but the last uh, thing, uh, noteworthy thing, that he wrote. And the title of it, I think, very much has that kind of influence of Descartes, at least, not necessarily explicitly in the in the text, but insofar as Durkheim is working with the kind of dualism, mind, body, social, individual, human, natural, social, biological, etc. And so he argues in that piece that human beings have a dual nature, hence the title, the dualism of human nature. Uh, he uses the uh, Latin homo duplex in order to be able to capture that. And it's, it's this double-sided where human beings are neither just an individual or just society, just mind or just body. Actually, they're mutually constituted together. He has a quote in that text, which I really love. He says, the distinctive feature is the constitutional duality of human nature. At all times, man himself has had a keen sense of his duality. So we actually know about this. It's not something that we are uh, that exists that is going to be separate to us. We ha- it, it is internalized, embodied. Uh, everywhere, indeed, he has conceived himself as formed of two radically heterogeneous beings, the body on the one hand, the soul on the other. So when he says body and soul here, does, when he says soul, does he mean the social then? I think so. I mean, I think he's playing with, I mean, part of his argument wanting even actually to expand it beyond Descartes and just say like a function of human experience is that in order to account for human uh, human being in the world, we have a universal tendency to think of ourselves in this dualism. So sometimes the dualism manifests as mind-body, sometimes it manifests as nature-culture, sometimes it manifests in uh, soul uh, and body. You know, it can, it can come in different ways, and Durkheim's particular contribution will be to see it in terms of the social and the individual. With that in mind, this kind of dualism ends up structuring the nature of our lived experience. And so, you know, I was, I was thinking while you were uh, speaking a moment ago, I was thinking, yeah, you know, one easy way of demonstrating this constant tension between the two is encapsulated in my experience this morning when the alarm went off at six o'clock 
and I was absolutely dead asleep and so asleep, you know, the sleep where you're just drooling on the pillow and it's, <laughs> and the, I know, <laughs> imagine it. And so the alarm goes off and deep inside me is this, oh no, I need to get up. I still need to work on, on my lecture today or whatever it was. And I know I need to sleep. And Yet five minutes later, after this tossing and turning and this interminable struggle, the alarm ended up going off again. I found myself getting up. And in that getting up, I overcame that kind of, that pull of instinct and biology and body pulling me back into bed. And I suppose that what Durkheim would say is that complicity in, in social norms, I need to get up in order to finish this thing that I was working on, is a reflection of a certain kind of social fact. Do non-human animals have a, a society or a self then for, for Durkheim? He seems to be quite specific about the human. Mm. I mean, I think that he will tend to say no. You know, uh, non-human animals may have society in the sense that they may live together in groups. But for him, the essential feature of human society is that there's something created external to an individual and that something consists of shared values, beliefs, and norms that everyone shares within a within a particular group and isn't irre, isn't reducible to a single individual and constrains us all and he doesn't see that happening in animal societies in animal societies there's strictly an organization kind of a mechanical form of uh, a relation of parts to parts but not that kind of production of something new he'll call this sui generis uh, sui generis society, a society that is somehow distinct and unique to itself. Importantly is the fact that we have these desires, your desire to continue sleeping and society's expectations for you to wake up and get on with your social obligations. There is a constant tension between the social uh, social obligations and my individual desires. And that is a productive tension. That's part of what defines that this dualism, you know, the homo, homo duplex, Durkheim's uh, conception of the self, there constantly this tension, this pull between my personal individual desires, social expectations and my obligations to participate in society, that is an absolutely productive, ongoing, continuous tension. Mm. And it's a tension and it's a struggle too. Just thinking about the dog that lives next door to me, and it uh, it doesn't necessarily need to feel the pull of society <laughs> to wake <laughs> itself up and uh, fulfill its obligations of barking. It barks rather a lot and uh, so it can sleep on on cue I suppose it's that question of whether or not and Durkheim's decisive about this that there isn't that kind of struggle or tension it just gives in to instinct mm. uh, so therefore there isn't that external kind of constraining body of influence that Durkheim calls this society sui generis I guess, then, if we're thinking of it in this way, and just to try and pull everything together, if for Descartes, he says, I am, I exist, as long as I'm thinking, Durkheim would say, 
I am, I exist. So long as I am social. <laughs> in that in that exact tune. Yes. <laughs> I am, I exist. So long as I am social. Can you say it in French? No, I don't know. No, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I would need to build myself up for that. <laughs> Maybe for next time. Well, I think that... Je suis, je suis. <laughs> There we go. I am. I exist. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> what about the social part? You, you left out the best part. Oh, Dirk, I'm very disappointed mm-hmm. in you, Melanie. Uh, if you have any questions for us, please feel free to tweet at us or follow us where you can't say that on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks. You need to. T- <laughs> you have the clicker. <laughs>